We did discuss the wall. We didn't discuss payment of the wall. What? Cowardly Donald. Chicken Don. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, up in uh, Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ, on the Central Coast 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI. In uh, Maui, Hawaii, 88.5 FM KAKU. Stay safe out there in Maui. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN 94.1 FM. Palinville, New York's WLPP on 102.9 FM. And AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yep, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. I hear she's doing well. Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around. Swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Uh, thank you for joining us today, for joining me and Desi Doyen, who is uh, here as ever. How are yes. you, Desi Doyen? I am good. Uh, I am here. I'm glad you are here. <laughs> and not in Mexico with uh, with Donald Trump today. Uh, he has just finished his meeting with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto uh, and uh, answered a few questions from the press afterwards in which it became clear that, uh, well, he said they discussed the wall that uh, Donald Trump has promised endlessly he will build across uh, the border, the southern border border of the United States and make Mexico pay for it. They discussed that wall, but Trump says he didn't talk to the president about who is going to pay for it. So he appears to have chickened out on that regard. Uh, and a lot of uh, folks are now talking about that in the minutes since that um, since that very short press conference wrapped up, Greg Sargent at the Washington Post tweets that um, before just before it was uh, uh, the press conference was done, he tweeted, if Trump does not urinate or vomit on Peña Nieto, he will have exceeded expectations <laughs> and proven how presidential he is. <laughs> and if you look at what uh, the, the media is uh, tweeting and writing about today, he that is, in fact, the case. He has defied pr- expectations by appearing, by looking like a president and by not, you know, passing out, having uh, not having his head fall off. So um, in any way, well, the phrase comes to mind uh, from the George W. Bush era, the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> I think those were in play in Mexico City today. Anyway, everyone else will talk about that. So we don't need to happily. President Obama, as we go to air, uh, he is uh, on his way towards the G20 summit in China 
He'll be making stops on the way in Tahoe, Nevada, in Hawaii, and uh, at the uh, Midway Atoll. He's scheduled to give speeches on climate change on the route and to dedicate a new protected national marine reserve in Hawaii, which will be the world's largest. That trip, uh, and specifically the speech in Hawaii, now looks looks like it will be coinciding, at least to some uh, respect, with a hurricane that is quickly heading towards the Hawaiian Islands today, with a second one waiting in line behind it, Desi Doyen. Yes, a bit of irony there, I suppose. Climate change speeches uh, perhaps forestalled by hurricanes. But we will see that irony is somewhat echoed by a federal offshore oil lease auction that we've been talking about over the past few days uh, down in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that took place last week in Louisiana on the same day that the that the president toured flood disaster sites down in Baton Rouge, where an historic deluge including two feet of rain falling in some areas over just four hours, uh, swamped the region there, led to deaths of uh, to the deaths of 13 people and damaged some 60,000 homes. Well, with all of that, several environmentalist groups are now suing the Obama administration to try and force them to issue a moratorium on the further leasing of federal lands and waters for the production of oil and gas, similar to the moratorium that the Obama administration has already placed on further coal leases uh, on federal lands. That was done. Was that earlier this year? Yeah, that was just a couple of of months ago uh, because their inspector general of the Interior Department uh, found uh, evidence that had been exposed by investigative journalists uh, by like Mm ProPublica about how coal companies are shorting the American public. Not only is the Bureau of Land Management leasing the lands of public lands for coal mining at way below market rates, but there was also this little trick that uh, coal companies would put into place where they would sell it to themselves uh, so they wouldn't have to pay the high royalties and then ship it out and sell it to somebody else, paying the much uh, getting the much higher price without paying royalties on it. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's also killing the planet. And so that there's too. that. Uh, so that's what the Obama administration did when it came to coal, but not so for oil and gas. Uh, And that's why these groups are suing. We will speak shortly to a representative from one of those groups who is suing the Obama administration's Bureau of Land Management to try and force them to keep it in the ground. That is ahead. Also, a number of follow up developments today, if time allows, on a number of stories that we've been reporting on and following closely of late here on on the broadcast over the past several days. So that's also ahead. And now some breaking news as we go to air. The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has now declined to reinstate sweeping North Carolina voting restrictions. This is a huge victory for voting rights. Um, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, as we've been discussing, uh, struck down this massive voter suppression law that Republicans in North Carolina had passed, restricting all kinds of elements, early voting, uh, early registration, uh, photo ID, putting in place photo ID restrictions and much more. All of that was struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, finding that. Um, those uh, restrictions had purposely, quote, targeted African-Americans with nearly surgical precision. 
Of course, North Carolina went to the Supreme Court to try and uh, roll back that injunction, try at least to get a stay on that injunction, claiming that, oh, we, we can't change the law this close to the election, even though they had previously told the Fourth Circuit Court that, yes, they could. Uh, deal with any decision that the Fourth Circuit had made as long as it came out before the end of July, which this decision had. Um, so now the Supreme Court uh, is declining to uh, to put a stay on that injunction. In fact, they have tied four to four. It's a deadlock, which means the lower court ruling stands. The lower court ruling in this case, which had struck down those unbelievably restrictive laws, the worst voter suppression laws since the Jim Crow era. Um, of course, they probably wouldn't have tied had uh, Antonin Scalia still been alive. In this case, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kennedy, Justice Alito, and uh, Justice Thomas, uh, they would have all granted the stay. Um, but, uh, but the uh, four uh, liberal uh, appointees on the court said they would not. That meant there's a, a tie and a tie goes to the lower court. So uh, it would have been five to four. They probably would have uh, got the stay on that. And we would have seen a lot of voting restrictions in North Carolina had Antonin Scalia still been alive. So uh, there is that. Now the fight in North Carolina will go to a county by county fight over early voting. We've been reporting on that. We will continue to keep our eyes on that. Meantime, speaking of elections, it was primary day on Tuesday in both Florida and Arizona. Let's hit some of these uh, results very quickly. First, here in uh, in Florida, Republican uh, Senator Marco Rubio will face off against Democratic uh, uh, Congressman Patrick Murphy in the U.S. Senate race in Florida this November. Marco Rubio easily won his primary on Tuesday in the Sunshine State. He got nearly 72 percent of the vote in his bid for the uh, uh, Republican nomination, seeking a second term. That, after he broke his pledge to not run for re-election after uh, he was trounced in his presidential bid where he had promised for months and months he would not be running again for the Senate. Well, not so much. I guess he is running after all, and uh, he, he won his, uh, his race. Uh, of course, he lost uh, the state of Florida during the presidential primary itself to Donald Trump. In this case, he defeated a uh, real estate developer who had served as a surrogate for Trump during the primaries where Trump had called him, you'll recall, little Marco, called him a lightweight. Rubio called Trump a con man only to come out in support of Trump now that the con man is the GOP's presidential nominee. Meanwhile, former Republican turned very corporatist Democrat Patrick Murphy soundly defeated his top competitor, progressive firebrand Congressman Alan Grayson. So Murphy wins the Democratic nomination in the U.S. Senate race. Murphy had uh, took nearly 60 percent of the vote. He'll now face uh, Rubio on November 8th in a race, a key race that will help decide uh, which party controls the U.S. Senate next year. Polls currently show Rubio with a narrow lead over Murphy. Uh, in that race with about 70 days to go. Speaking of establishment Democrats, one of the most hotly contested and closely watched Democratic U.S. House primaries in Florida on Tuesday was between Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and her Bernie Sanders endorsed challenger Tim Canova. Wasserman Schultz, of course, you'll recall, was forced to step down from her role as DNC chair on the eve of the 
uh, Democratic National Convention in July in the wake of the DNC email hacks uh, confirming that the party's establishment had supported, uh, were at least were, were showing support for Hillary Clinton over Sanders in the uh, in the presidential primary. Uh, results show the six-term Congresswoman defeating Canova by some 14 points, 57 to 43 on Tuesday. Wasserman Schultz is expected to coast to re-election at this point in the very Democratic-leaning Florida district that she serves. Uh, she described the victory as incredibly sweet and satisfying when asked on Tuesday night by local media whether he planned to uh, to concede and endorse the controversial congresswoman and the uh, longtime Clinton supporter, Tim Canova told reporters, quote, I'll concede that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a corporate stooge. How's that? Wow. Meow. Yep. Uh, there you go. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, what happened uh, in some of the key races in any event in Florida. Meanwhile, over in Arizona, Arizona's U.S. senator and yes, Donald Trump supporter, whether he uh, likes to admit it or not, John McCain, seeking his sixth, sixth six year term as a U.S. senator, defeated his main populist nativist Republican primary challenger. Uh, former state Senator Kelly Ward, a true Trump believer, the 2008 Republican presidential nominee who gave the world Sarah Palin and the rest of the uh, Tea Party slash Freedom Caucus slash alt-right faction that the nation is still contending with, and most notably, I guess, in the candidacy of Donald Trump, who, by the way, has uh, suggested that McCain is not a war hero because he was captured in Vietnam. He once called him a dummy. But uh, nonetheless, John McCain is still supporting uh, Donald Trump. In any in any event, uh, McCain is now thought to be uh, facing his toughest reelection battle to date. Um, on Tuesday night, the 80 year old McCain won just under 52 percent of the vote in his uh, primary race in Arizona, according to election night results, in what could be seen as a defeat for Donald Trump since Ward, his main opponent there, she was a huge supporter. Um, and even as McCain cowed to, you know, support the the GOP uh, nominee, largely for personal political convenience, in any event, Ward did not take her loss well either. Uh, so uh, she said uh, she told reporters last night after refusing to debate while running a slash and burn campaign devoid of actual ideas. I hope the senator can rest comfortably with his conscience as he continues to lecture others about civility. Kelly Ward added the Republican Party cannot win as a national party if we keep nominating unprincipled career politicians whose only objective is perpetual reelection. So a lot of sore losers, it seems, on Tuesday <laughs> on both the Democratic and the Republican side. Uh, John McCain will face off against Democratic U.S. House uh, Rep. Ann Kirkpatrick. She ran uh, unopposed, uh, but for a, a write-in opponent, I believe. Uh, otherwise, she ran unopposed for the Democratic Party nomination. Uh, some other races very quickly of note. Joe Arpaio, the controversial Maricopa County Sheriff. And uh, 84-year-old Trump supporter, he wins uh, his primary for a seventh term in Maricopa County, Arizona, vanquishing three other Republican opponents to win that primary. And uh, for those who are still angry at the uh, at the longtime Republican County recorder in Maricopa County, 
You're, what, you're looking surprised already, Desi Doyle? No, I'm waiting with bated breath. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, she is, uh, of course, that would be Helen Purcell. She is the county's chief election official in Phoenix, Arizona, Maricopa County, where uh, 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 polling sites during the presidential primary this year were radically reduced. She radically reduced them from 200 back in 2012 to just about 60 poll sites in Maricopa in Phoenix this year. Uh, maybe some good news for you people who don't care for Helen Purcell. Bernie, I know a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters had blamed Purcell for those uh, problems uh, that you know many voters had trying to cast a vote in that primary election earlier this year. There were long lines all over the city because of what Purcell did. Many of the polling places in less affluent areas uh, were shut down in, in those minority areas thanks to her scheme. Now, her scheme, by the way, was to create voting centers where anybody could vote as opposed to precinct-based voting. And that's why, uh, at least ostensibly, she had uh, uh, reduced the number of poll sites because, in theory, you don't need 200 polls if you can vote at any of them, if you don't have to go to your specific precinct. That was her argument in any event. It probably would have been stopped had the uh, Voting Rights Act not been gutted by the Supreme Court. Uh, in any event, she was a Republican, which I got to remind a lot of the Bernie Sanders people who claim that she was, you know, trying. She was in the bag for Hillary. Helen Purcell is a Republican uh, and both uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have sued her for that action. Um, in any event, with all of that in mind, Purcell herself was on the ballot on Tuesday night. And now she appears to be in the fight of her life uh, right now as we go to air with 99% of the precincts reporting, according to the Maricopa election site run by Purcell herself. Helen Purcell is now said to be losing her to her Republican challenger in this race, uh, her Republican challenger, Aaron Flannery, by just 339 votes. Wow. That out of 26,000 votes so far counted or tallied by their uh, electronic computers out there in Maricopa, a uh, 339-vote margin. That is a difference of 0.14%. Now, when I went to uh, bed last night, she Purcell was winning, by the way, by 116 votes. So now that result has, has currently flipped. Uh, there are still provisional ballots to be uh, counted and canvassing to be done. Uh, so, you know, once again, it's going to be close no matter what. So by way of a reminder, voting matters. Every single vote counts, or at least it's supposed to. And it actually might in this case in uh, in Maricopa County. Uh, Purcell, by the way, has been the county recorder in Maricopa since 1988, serving seven terms so about 30 years in that role, at least until now, maybe, perhaps, we will see. So this is, a, uh, this is big if the results uh, hold throughout the canvassing, uh, etc. Um, so th we're at the end of the primary cycle, almost. There are still some states' uh, primaries to come in uh, Massachusetts, New York, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Delaware in early September. Then that is it until general presidential election day on November 8th. What could possibly go wrong? We'll take a quick break, and we are back with much more Bradcast uh, right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Last week in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, President Obama promised long-term aid to victims of the extraordinary flooding down there. Some two feet of rain fell in just two days in some parts of the state. And while Obama has been a champion in a number of respects in the fight against global warming, he failed to mention climate change at all in his remarks after that uh, devastating historic disaster in Louisiana, which resulted in some 13 deaths and uh, more than 60,000 flooded homes. Uh, ironically, not long after his remarks there, I think on the same day, a federal auction was held for new offshore oil leases. The bad news, 23 million acres of the Gulf of Mexico were put up for sale in that uh, lease sale. Uh, the good news, sort of, apparently the auction was a bit of a dud. As our own Desi Doyen reported last week, just 138,000 acres were sold. I guess that's uh, a dud, uh, according to the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, at least out of the uh, millions of acres that were for sale. That was apparently the lowest amount ever at a drilling rights auction, according to The Hill. Still, the sale and Obama's very presence in Louisiana last week seems to present a very stark contrast between rhetoric and action at times by the administration over the past eight years. Obama helped broker the landmark Paris Climate Agreement last year, has established the landmark Clean Power Plan requiring fairly drastic reductions in uh, greenhouse gas emissions from states. And while the Interior Department has announced a moratorium on new coal leases on federal lands, they have not done the same for new oil and gas leases, which has rankled a number of environmentalists. Last week, according to Rebecca Moss at The New Mexican, a Santa Fe-based environmental group filed a federal lawsuit against the Obama administration seeking a moratorium on all oil and gas lease sales on public lands, until the completion of an analysis showing how drilling impacts climate change. Wild Earth Guardians and Washington, D.C.-based Physicians for Social Responsibility claim in the suit that nearly 400 drilling leases were sold across 380,000 acres of public land in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming without any analysis of the environmental or public health effects. Since President Barack Obama took office in 2008, the suit notes, uh, more than 10 million acres have been leased for oil and gas drilling, which the group says flies in the face of the administration's commitment to reducing carbon emissions. 
Quote, we cannot continue to blindly commit our public lands to oil and gas exploitation and have a shot at meeting the administration's climate goals, says Kyle Tisdell, an attorney from the Western Environmental Law Center in Denver, who is representing the plaintiffs in this suit. The Interior Department is in climate denial, added Samantha Ruscavage-Bars, a uh, staff attorney for Wildlife Guardians. Joining us now to discuss that denial and their denial by the Barack Obama administration um, to discuss that denial and their lawsuit is Jeremy Nichols. He's the director of the climate energy and uh, the climate and energy program at Wild Earth Guardians, one of the plaintiffs here. They are a grassroots organization working through the court system to fight fossil fuel development, promote clean energy and develop innovative strategies to safeguard the climate and the American West. He's also the founder of the nonprofit Rocky Mountain Clean Air Action, and he joins us today from Golden, Colorado. Jeremy Nichols, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. Uh, all right. In in your uh, there's some kind of some amazing stuff here, it seems to me, and some amazing contracts uh, contrasts that need to be sorted out. Contracts too, I guess. Uh, in your uh, <laughs> yeah. in your press release, you state that the uh, that the administration, since taking office, has sold some 10 million acres of public land rights to the oil and gas industry, often for as, as little as two dollars an acre, and that's an area 50 percent larger than Yellowstone, Everglades, Grand Canyon, Olympic, Yosemite, and Great Smoky Mountains national parks combined. Wow. Um, and nonetheless, you write the administration refuses to disclose the impacts of this oil and gas leasing on our climate. So what exactly are you uh, are, are you seeking in this suit? The disclosure of the environmental impact studies, if they even exist here for these uh, for these lands or to simply put a moratorium on all such leases, uh, as we've seen the administration do when it at, at least when it comes to coal mining. Yeah, well, what we're seeing here is a, a pattern and practice of the administration continuing to hand over the rights uh, to our public lands, to the oil and gas industry. And, and, and it literally is handing over the rights. They are, by leasing these lands, they, they, convert, they, they basically convert them to the ownership of the industry. And industry can hang on to these lands for as long as they want and continue to develop them and pump oil and gas out of the ground. It, it really is a, it, what we would call an irreversible commitment of public resources here. And, uh, and it's happened. It's continued to happen time and time again over the years, um, even though we know today, and I have known for some time, that when we are facilitating more oil and gas production, we are in essence condoning uh, the release of, of a lot more carbon into our atmosphere. And in this moment in time, pumping more carbon into the atmosphere is the last thing that this administration, and we as the American public, should be condoning. Um, the problem here has been the administration has a very serious blind spot. Now, certainly they have acknowledged that in other aspects of, of fossil fuel management that there needs to be some restraint right now. Uh, with the oil and gas program, and particularly here on the ground in the western United States, there's absolutely no restraint. Um, industry demands a lease, and the U.S. Department of the Interior turns around and sells it to them. Um, it's almost as if the administration um, is completely beholden to the oil and gas industry when it comes to this program. And given that we are in a moment of time when we need an all-hands-on-deck approach to combating climate change, uh, including not only addressing smokestacks and tailpipes, but mm -hmm. also addressing the production of fossil fuels, we feel that it's high time for this administration to apply the same scrutiny to the oil and gas program that it has applied to coal-fired power plants, 
its coal mining program, uh, and other aspects of, of our fossil fuel uh, consumption. So is that, once again, I guess it brings me back to that same question, uh, are, are you trying to, uh, the, the lawsuit itself, does it seek the disclosure of environmental impact studies, uh, or is it just trying to shut down, uh, calling, uh, you know, for, for shutting down these land leases, or I guess both, uh, shutting it down until the uh, environmental impact studies are released? And by the way, do we even know if those environmental impact studies actually exist from the uh, from the administration? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good question, and I think you know the end game is we would prefer not to see fossil fuels produced. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it just seems like no matter how you slice them, uh, they are dirty. They negatively affect our health, our water, our air. Uh, but that's a long term proposition here. We do not have the solutions in place to simply say tomorrow we are going to stop producing oil and stop producing natural gas. We need to create space for solutions to be developed and to take hold to help our nation and our world be able to transition from these fossil fuels. The biggest step forward that we can take in that direction is to, in the near term, at least say we're going to stop handing over the rights uh, to our public lands to the oil and gas industry. And we're at a moment in time where right now uh, of the least of the oil and gas leases that exist, in the United States, the, the, the publicly owned oil and gas leases, only 40% of them right now are actually producing oil and gas. So there's 60% of all the leases that are out there. Uh, industry is just sitting on them. They're not using them. They're not producing oil and gas. Uh, put another way, we are not even dependent on those leases. Uh, we feel like industry has already been leased enough of our public land mm. to be able to continue to produce oil and gas and to keep our nation um, fueled and and secure as we develop the solutions. And so it's actually a critical moment uh, that we're seeing, both in terms of climate progress, uh, awareness over the impacts of fossil fuel production, and just the state of the oil and gas industry in this nation. Um, You know, you'll probably know oil and gas prices are are very low right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of production going on in in the world. Um, we're at this beautiful moment where we can say, hey, it's time for a timeout. Let's take that timeout and let's develop a plan for the best path forward here. You know, our hope is it does lead to a future where we don't have to depend on oil and gas, but obviously there are a lot of steps we need to take to get there. And we want to be able to give the public, to give experts, to give policymakers and officials the opportunity to, to make suggestions on that path forward. And that's this environmental review that we're calling for, Yeah, it's not so, not so much about demanding an analysis as it is about opening an, opening up a, a public discourse, a public dialogue that has yet to happen around how we manage oil and gas. Now, at the same time, uh, speaking of the oil and gas industry, the Western Energy Alliance—that's a you know oil fossil fuel trade group—they uh, have filed a complaint against the U.S. Department of the Interior, claiming that uh, actions that deterring oil and gas lease sales violates the uh, Mineral Leasing Act, which requires the government to make minerals on federal lands available to the public. So their suit is actually uh, sort of the opposite. They're saying the administration is uh, is not leasing enough. They say that, uh, quote, this is according to Rebecca Moss again at the New, Mexi- uh, the New Mexican, through protests and petitions, the Keep It in the Ground movement is trying to coerce the uh, Bureau of Land Management into violating the law by stopping all leasing on federal lands. That's according to Kathleen uh, Segema, the vice president of Western Energy Alliance, in a statement. Uh, they go on to say that without quarterly lease sales, 
uh, the federal government, states, and taxpayers lose out on valuable revenue. So I, I know you're not a, a, an attorney here, I don't think, uh, Jeremy uh, Nichols, but uh, does the federal requirement to hold these lease sales somehow tie the uh, Obama administration's hands at least until Congress changes the laws in in this way is is that a, a potential explanation for the o- obama administration continuing to lease these lands as far as you know well first thing in response to the western energy alliance's lawsuit i mean it really is a, a shocking uh filing on their end i mean they're basically saying that even though they've gotten everything they want on our public lands 10 million acres of of, of our public lands since president obama has taken office that it's not enough for them uh, that even though the Bureau of Land Management within the Department of the Interior continues to lease oil and gas on on almost a quarterly basis, that, that that's not enough for the oil and gas industry. And I, I think that there exposes the, the predicament that we're in right now, where we have an oil and gas industry that is so greedy and so, um, you know, has, has literally put the American public not only in the back seat but in the trunk uh, <laughs> when it comes to managing our publicly owned oil and gas, that... You know, we, we really need uh, we really need some bold action here, and we need the Bureau of Land Management to and the Interior Department to step up. And we do believe that there is discretion uh, under their, uh, the existing laws to say, you know what, it's time for a timeout. This crisis has boiled over, and we need to come up with real effective solutions. Um, now, if the Western Energy Alliance is right, that effectively, if the industry demands an oil and gas lease, that our federal government has no choice but to sell them that oil and gas lease, um, then that's us, which has kicked the crisis up to an extreme level. Um, our public resources, we don't believe Congress, first and foremost, leg- created legislation that mandated our federal government to appease the oil and gas industry's interests in such an extreme way. But if that is the case, then I would hope that, that people in Congress, you know, as frustrating as they may be, would realize that it is not to the public benefit to simply manage our oil and gas resources according to the whims of uh, the oil and gas industry's greed. And so, um, you know, it'll be an interesting test case. Yeah. If they're, you know, we believe they're wrong, but if they're right, um, I think it's just going to fuel the move to reform the way our oil and gas is managed. Well, yeah, um, and then, of course, good luck waiting for Congress uh, to take action <laughs> on, on that. Uh, I guess a lot depends, uh, underscores once again, that a lot depends on what happens this November, if Democrats can take back the Senate and uh, maybe even the House. But, you know, when when Democrats controlled the Senate back in, what was it, 2000 and, uh, 2009, and they could have passed something like this, uh, it, it, Democrats passed a, a cap-and-trade bill in the House, but they could not get one passed in the in the Senate. And it was uh, Democrats included who were, uh, you know, holdouts there. So Dem- a lot of Democrats are beholden uh, to that oil and gas industry. Uh, you, you um, uh, President Obama has cited, Jeremy, the impact of, uh, of, of the climate on his decision concerning the Keystone XL pipeline when he finally rejected that... Uh, Canadian tar sands uh, company TransCanada's plan to build that massive pipeline from Alberta down to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, as I noted at the top of the show, he's also been a champion at times for the environment, to be fair. And, uh, you know, he's taken a lot of action against climate change. So how does Wild Earth Guardians, your group, explain that apparent blind spot that you cited uh, in some aspects of the administration's environmental policy? Uh, are they beholden to gas, uh, oil and gas industries, as you see it? Or are they just following the law? Or do they just not understand the danger? I mean, there seems to be some 
some some some circles here that are very difficult to square, as they say yeah. in, in the policies. <laughs> right. No, that's uh, you're exactly right. And I think here's the thing. I think if you ask uh, if you ask Americans, let's say you ask every American, have you have you ever heard of uh, you know the federal oil and gas program? And are you aware that your western public lands are uh, regularly auctioned off to the oil and gas industry? Um, I would venture to guess that probably three quarters, if not more, way more, would say that they don't know that and they weren't aware. And so I think part of this is is helping to build a level of awareness that can foster the effective action that we're looking for. And I'll give President Obama a lot of credit. He he has definitely acknowledged the importance of addressing climate change and and in doing something about it. And so we we feel like though our challenge is to help to define and illuminate the imperative. Um, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I think he probably doesn't understand the impacts of the federal oil and gas program to our climate. And mm-hmm. our lawsuit is, is one very powerful vehicle for helping to open his eyes and to uh, open his eyes to understanding that he is in control of these uh, this agency, the Interior Department, that is uh, wielding a tremendous amount of influence uh, over uh, our nation's climate legacy. Um, we really want to reach the president on this. Certainly the agencies. Uh, the Bureau of Land Management in particular continues to lease oil and gas. And I think that's a function of a, a long ingrained culture. Um, that's been their business for many years, mm. selling off the public's oil and gas to help generate revenue. Well, now we realize that climate is exacting a terrible toll on our country. I mean, the costs uh, are continue to mount. You mentioned the floods in Louisiana, mm-hmm. uh, directly a result of, of our changing climate. Um, uh, don't tell me that bringing money in for oil and gas is more important than trying to prevent the costs of another Louisiana flood. Now, we're in a moment in time where the, we really do see that the costs of, of continuing to extract oil and gas are not worth it for our nation. And we are trying to help our president understand that so he can continue to take bold and decisive action for our climate and for our future. You uh so I'm speaking with Jeremy Nichols, uh, the director of the Climate and Energy Program of Wild Wild Earth Guardians. They are suing the Obama administration to uh, to uh, force them to disclose climate impact studies uh, or, in lieu of that, put a moratorium on the sale of oil and gas leases on federal lands around the country, as they have done with uh, with, with coal leases, uh, but not oil and gas for some reason. I want to hit something, Jeremy, that you mentioned uh, earlier, that these companies, that they that once they obtain access to this federal land, they retain the rights, essentially, uh, f- is it is it forever? What are the requirements of these types of leases? How long do they get to hold on to them? Uh, you, you suggest they just sort of buy it up and then sit on it for decades? Is there no limit uh, to, to how long they can control that land and, uh, you know, how long it will be before the the public can take it back from them, particularly if they're not going to be exploiting it for uh, for oil and gas? Yeah, so here's the basic rule. Once a company gets an oil and gas lease, if they punch a well into the ground on that lease, then they can hang on to that lease for as long as they want. It's called putting a lease in production. And so long as a lease is in production, doesn't necessarily have to be producing constantly. But as long as that's the case, then uh, a company can hang on to a lease for as long as it wants. Wow. Um, now, there are various exemptions, too. If a company... Uh, doesn't put a lease in production. Um, the Interior Department oftentimes cuts industry a break and says, well, go ahead and hang on to it for a little longer uh, until you decide you're ready to punch a hole in the ground and you know put a well in. 
Um, and we find that too often the Interior Department is uh, allows industry to to hang on to these leases even beyond when they should be put back into the public's hands. And it's it's a chronic problem that, uh, that uh, some groups have found. You know, maybe uh, well, several million acres of Western public lands are, are in kind of this limbo where they're they're not producing, but they leases should be canceled, but they haven't been. And that's, that's that's part of the problem with this program is it's a, a veritable black box. And uh, at the end of the day, it seems only to serve the oil and gas industry and not the American public. And so hopefully, hopefully with this lawsuit and with continued public pressure, hopefully we're on track to change that. Well, doesn't it serve the public, uh, Jeremy, in that uh, right now, at least, we need energy. We need energy. Uh, We rely on oil and natural gas. Uh, The Obama administration has described natural gas as a bridge fuel to get us off of uh, oil and coal, which are arguably uh, uh, much dirtier. Um, I know the the, uh, the oil companies and the uh, uh, coal companies, they like to say that people like you, Jeremy, are condemning us to live in darkness. Uh, Right. right. In a cave, yeah. Back to the Stone yeah. Age. What, what do you what do you say to that? And what do you say, frankly, to people who would tend to be on your side, progressives and so forth? You know, who say, as Hillary Clinton has over the years, that you know, natural gas is a bridge fuel. We need to get off of of gas and uh, uh, and coal. So I'm sorry, oil and coal. So we need to go to natural gas to be able to stay out of those dark caves entirely. Well, first off, on the subject of natural gas, I think, you know, the, the statement uh, of it being a bridge fuel, I think it was made many years ago in haste. It was politically expedient. Over the years, we have gained a lot more knowledge about the true cost of natural gas development, both in terms of, of methane leaks, the scale of, of leaking uh, pipelines and what that is doing for our climate. Methane, of course, is, you know, could be up to 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Uh, we're also realizing that the shift to natural gas uh, is still creating a lot of carbon emissions. Um, believe it or not, natural gas is still a fossil fuel, and when burned, it does produce carbon. And even though it may be cleaner than coal, um, it's simply replacing coal with gas mm-hmm. is not bringing emissions down to a safe, safe level. And so that, that, is, that is not a responsible path forward to take. Um, I think what we're looking at are the totality of costs associated with oil and gas development. We we lose our public land. Um, increasingly, our, our wildlife, um, Western wildlife populations are, are losing habitat and their populations are declining in the face of oil and gas development. Our water is being contaminated. Our air is being filled with pollution. Um, if <laughs> I, I challenge anybody to try to make the case that somehow it is healthy and appropriate for us to continue to rely on fossil fuel. Uh, nevertheless, you know, we are dependent on them right now, and I will fully acknowledge that. And I think it speaks to this need to start to, like I said earlier, take the first steps toward weaning our nation away from fossil fuels. And we can do that by, first and foremost, ending the practice of leasing. And as I said, you know, industry already, 40% of its leases they're producing on. The other 60% they're not even producing on. They have enough leases to continue to provide oil and gas for our nation in the near future. I think in the long term, however... We need to come up with a plan that takes those leases from the oil and gas industry, puts them back in the public's hands, and that uh, helps to foment a future where we are fueled by something other than fossil fuels. Uh, I I understand that solutions haven't fully taken hold yet, but we feel like by at least starting to say no and starting to say keep it in the ground, we will create the space for innovation to really... 
get kicked in the high gear. And I, th- I think it's important to note that uh, your lawsuit uh, was filed along with physicians for social responsibility, uh, you know, citing the medical concerns of, of, of these continuing practices. Uh, on that point, Green Party presidential nominee Dr. Jill Stein has called for climate action uh, far beyond, really, what Hillary Clinton has called for. Never mind Donald Trump, who's, you know, calling for, you know, rolling back all regulations, getting rid of all regulations, essentially, against the fossil fuel industry called climate change a hoax. Um, But uh, Stein's program goes beyond what Hillary Clinton has called for. And as a doctor, uh, she has said... Uh, Jill Stein has said that much of the program can be her program can be paid for by cost savings due to lower medical costs, et cetera, associated with the fossil fuels and and the healthier uh, society. She argues we would have if we got rid of them. Um, Now, her numbers, I think, uh, may be questionable as far as what, uh, you know, health savings will pay for and will not pay for. But does your organization have a position on uh, on the presidential candidates and on their positions on these uh, on these various issues? Well, we, we certainly we appreciate bold vision. And I think that if we're going to solve these big problems, we need to bring bold vision. Certainly, we need pragmatic solutions. But if we aren't clear on where we're going, ultimately, then I don't think we're going to get the right policies in place. Certainly focusing on the health savings is important. Also, you know, keeping carbon in the ground saves us climate costs. There, there, there's money to be had by keeping carbon in the ground right now. And there's also opportunities to perhaps you know, ensure that the fossil fuel industry, as they continue to produce, uh, pays their fair share. Um, you know, should we charge them more for the privilege of producing our oil and gas and direct that money toward economic transition. Uh, we're seeing immense potential around coal issues. Um, you know, those, those policies uh, hold, a, hold a lot of promise, and I think, um, you know, the reality is we can't keep mining coal, so let's at least get what we need from the industry at this time, and as we work to put them out of business, I think a similar uh, concept can be put in place for oil and gas. Uh, as you said, we're selling leases right now for $2 an acre. If we sold them for $4 an acre, would that put the oil and gas industry out of business? I doubt it, but it would bring us, it would yield an extra $2 on top of the $2 already that we're making. That is money that we can direct toward transition and toward innovation. And I'm and tr- so we, we, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say, I, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to sort of press you here. I've got just a minute or two. I'm trying to press you here. A lot of people have said, well, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, they're the same. The only option is a, a, a Jill Stein. And obviously there's a, a question whether a Jill Stein can even, you know, come close to being elected across the country. And so if we look at a binary choice then between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, where Hillary Clinton is going to continue many of the same policies, I suspect, as the uh, as the Obama administration, I know that would be a concern to you. But if you look at those two, is there uh, any thoughts you have that your group has on uh, on that binary choice that many Americans uh, may see themselves facing on this issue that is so important? Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's been uncomfortable just because you know we're a five hundred one c three and uh-huh. a lot of Guardians doesn't take positions on candidates. I mean, certainly Trump's position on our issues we're very frightful of, mm-hmm. and certainly Hillary Clinton we do worry that uh, many of the policies that are in place now that we feel have not been as effective as they could be will be continued. Um, I think no matter what happens, we're going to continue to be pushing for the fullest vision, and um, you know mm-hmm. no matter who is elected. 
I think we're going to have to remain vigilant. There are, the fossil fuel industry wields a tremendous amount of power, and even the most progressive candidates, um, you know, are going to need. They're going to need to push every now and then. Um, yes. Yeah, we have a major challenge ahead of us. Keep up, uh, keep up the good push, uh, Jeremy. It is much needed. All of this coming on the same week, by the way, as the National Park Service turns 100. Uh, there have been celebrations and many huzzas uh, to the service and the nation's spectacular national park system's commitment to protecting public lands. We've heard that from... Uh, from the Obama administration, from Hillary Clinton, and yet uh, it seems almost impossible to square this circle with the uh, uh, continuing uh, turning over of federal lands to these oil and gas companies. Uh, so, uh, Jeremy, uh, thank you and your group for continuing to uh, to push. Good luck with this lawsuit. Hope you'll stay in touch as the uh, as the suit moves forward. We'd we'd love to have you back to uh, uh, talk about the progress as it does. It'd be great to be back, Pat. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Nichols, Director of the Climate and Energy Program at Wild Earth Guardians. You can get more information on the lawsuit and on their good work at wildearthguardians.org. You can also follow them on the Twitters at Climate West and at Our Carbon, O-U-R Carbon. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Pat. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast. A couple of updates, a number of updates on some stories we have been covering on this program lately. That and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. If you're uh, Maine Governor Paula Page, it does make you crazy. Uh, if you missed our, our show yesterday, we went uh, we, we told the the ballad of Paul LePage. You can download the entire program at bradblog.com. Uh, this guy is just melting down, uh, really. Uh, and uh, he, he left. We went into great detail yesterday on all of this. He left this profane, obscene message for a, a Democratic state lawmaker threatening to, uh, you know, to come and get him, calling him all kinds of names that we had to bleep out like crazy. Um, but, you know, Paula Page has been kind of crazy for uh, quite some time, which is why we've been covering him year after year after year, and which is why it is so amazing that the state of Maine re-elected him. Well, now he seems to be having a meltdown after leaving this voicemail for this Democratic le legislator um, after uh, telling the media there that uh, he, he wishes it was, what was it, 1855 so he could have a duel with him. And shoot him between the eyes. And shoot yeah. him between the eyes, saying that he is at war uh, and, and basically uh, blaming black people for uh, the drug epidemic up in uh, up in Maine amongst Maine's white people. Uh, in any event, uh, Republican uh, 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 lawmakers up there sort of had an intervention with this guy to try to talk him down uh, earlier this week. They said that uh, he's going to be uh, talking to people to seek help. Well, and uh, in the meantime, Paul LePage was uh, talking about maybe he was going to resign. Well, now it looks like he's claiming he is not going to resign. However, he has vowed to never speak to the media again. Seriously. 
Uh, according to TPM, uh, Maine Governor Paul LePage said on Wednesday that he has no plans to resign after a week uh, full of high-profile embarrassments, but he does intend to seek, quote, spiritual guidance, unquote. He said, I will not resign. He's what he told reporters in his office after a meeting with uh, uh, the Maine State Rep Drew Gatine, the guy who he had left a message threatening on his voicemail, calling him all sorts of names that I cannot repeat here. So he met with him, uh, and then according to the Boston Globe, LePage also said that he would seek spiritual guidance with his family, but he had no plans to seek, quote, professional help. So uh, that's too bad. Yeah, it is actually is kind of too bad because he could use it. Uh, He's a far right, uh, you know, alt right, big supporter of Donald Trump. He's, uh, uh, you know, been meeting with these uh, folks, these Tea Party folks for years, coming up with these insane conspiracy theories. He seems ill-equipped to handle the pressures of the job. And now now he's, yeah. uh, So he's going to get spiritual guidance, but not professional help. And then he went on to vow that, uh, quote, he will no longer speak to the press ever again after today, saying that he was tired of being caught in, quote, gotcha moments by the media. He said, I'm serious. Everything will be put in writing. I'm tired of being caught in the gotcha moments. So uh, uh, there you go. That's where Paul LePage is. Um, On Tuesday, he had gone so far as to say he might not be able to finish his second term as governor. He said, I think some things I've been asked to do are beyond my ability. I'm not going to say that I'm going to finish it, the term. I'm not going to say that I'm uh, I'm not saying that I'm going to finish it. I I don't know what the hell he was saying, actually. I don't think anybody does. But after he said that, he went on to say that uh, rumors of his possible resignation are, quote, greatly exaggerated. Well, we will see how it goes after he gets a bit of spiritual guidance, but not professional help. Uh, In another quick follow up here, we've got uh, today we had been uh, reporting a few days ago on Stephen Bannon, the CEO, the recently appointed CEO of the Donald Trump campaign, um, who had uh, been registered to vote in the state of Florida in Miami-Dade County, Uh, where he did not actually live. He was registered to vote at uh, what is now a vacant house. It was the house of uh, his former uh, wife where he was uh, registered, even though he apparently did not live in Florida, which would be a violation of the law, which would be a a third-degree felony in Florida. And uh, just the latest example of voter registration fraud by top high-level Republicans. This is a guy who used to head uh, the Breitbart News service. Uh, Breitbart News is out there along with the Republicans claiming that we need all of these voting restrictions because Democrats are carrying out so much voter fraud. And yet they are the ones caught doing it time and time again themselves. As we uh, have been uh, discussing over the past week, Mitt Romney uh, did the same thing, registered to vote in his son's unfinished basement in January of 2010, even though he did not live in the state of Massachusetts, where his son lived at the time. He had houses in uh, New Hampshire and California, but not in Massachusetts. Yet Mitt Romney had registered to vote there. That would also be illegal. And uh, Ann Coulter famously committed voter registration fraud and voter fraud, by the way, in the state of Florida when she registered at a house where she did not live. 
So Republicans do this all the time. The list goes on and on and on. We've been covering it for years, even while they're claiming that Democrats are out there doing the same thing. In any event, now Steve Bannon is apparently being investigated by state's attorneys uh, in Florida's Miami-Dade County. They are reportedly looking into his voter records as uh, Donald Trump's campaign chief. Uh, and this is NBC News reporting uh, that his voting history in the state of Florida has been turned over by election officials in the area. Uh, Rosie Pastrana, executive assistant to the county's election supervisor, said that I know that there is an investigation, but I know very little about it. They requested voter records for him which is why I know there is an investigation ongoing. State Attorney Ed Griffith said he couldn't comment except to say that we investigate all potential crimes brought to our attention, adding that if it was, uh, if it was brought to our attention, we would certainly review any potential crime to see if it is indeed a crime or an administrative violation. It would also be a violation of uh, Florida tax laws, potentially. So they're looking at that down in the state of Florida, wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be interesting if the uh, top campaign official on the Donald Trump campaign was uh, was was charged with voter fraud? It would be fun and uh, also not surprising at all to those of us who have been following this mess. Finally, last story. Vladimir Putin has been arrested at a Florida supermarket. Yes, really. Uh, police, speaking of Florida, police down in West Palm Beach, Florida, say that a 48-year-old man who shares the name of the Russian president was arrested at a public supermarket in the city's downtown last week. Police say Putin was screaming at employees and refused to leave the store. Records with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, according to AP, show that uh, he was charged with trespassing and resisting an officer without violence. Putin appeared in court on Monday and was released on his own recognizance. See, you'd never get to say that about any other world leader, probably. Mm, maybe. We'll see how things go. My thanks to... Uh, could be a busy year. My thanks to our uh, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Jeremy Nichols of Wild Earth Guardians, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, go listen to that fun Paula Page show from yesterday. You can, uh, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. You can also reach me via email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.